Do you know what separates a failed business exit from a highly profitable one? Do you want to maximize the value of your business? The Business Exit Stories podcast is the solution. Through a collection of stories told by the business intermediaries who facilitate those transactions, you'll receive the key takeaways from successful and, yes, some not-so-successful business exits. Now is the time to begin to position your business for an exit by implementing key strategies designed to maximize your enterprise value and help you achieve an exceptionally profitable exit. Today we have with us Matt Wokley and Jay Snip. They are business intermediaries based in Atlanta, Georgia. Matt and Jay share some fascinating stories of home runs and lost opportunities from entrepreneurs who spent decades building up their businesses with entirely different outcomes when it came time to exit. You'll find that these outcomes should be instructive to any of you that are considering exiting your business in the next few years. In the first story that Matt shares with us is about a chemist that solves a problem that his wife had with some of her hair products and cosmetic beauty products that she was using. While he was working full-time as a chemist, he developed some chemical processes that he was able to incorporate into the enhancement of these products that turned a side hustle into a business that exploded into a $19 million a year business virtually overnight. Any of our listeners will relate to the issues that accompany hypergrowth businesses when they scale and how a hypergrowth business can almost and sometimes does force an early exit and in this case how disaster was averted. Jay then talks about how an absentee owner of a business sold and how a senior executive from another field was able to take over a child care business and used leverage to get a 10x return because she was able to scale and grow the business through the use of this leverage. Matt then shares how a high school graduate that made money mowing lawns turned his part-time job into a multi-million dollar exit by smartly building his business on a day-to-day basis and planning his exit like a pro. Jay then reveals how and why deciding not to go to medical school was a smart financial decision because when most doctors are just finishing up their residency and beginning their medical practice, this entrepreneur had already banked over $15 million on the sale of his medical technology company. This is Marvin L. Storm with the Business Exit Stories podcast. Today we're here with Matt Watley and Jay Snip. So, Matt, would you take a few minutes and introduce yourself and talk a little bit about your firm, where you're located, and then perhaps you can have Jay chat a little bit about his background and we'll get started here and chatting about some of your transaction stories that you've had over the decades you've been in the business and we'll kind of take it from there. So, Matt, tell us a little bit about the company and yourself. Okay. Uh, Hi, Uh, my name is Matt Walkley. I am president and founder of Preferred Business Brokers. Uh, We uh, were established in 1996. So Preferred um, came about, I I spent 17 years in the investment banking business dealing with public companies and decided to stay closer to home and, and work with some local businesses and got into the private business transactions. So, um, uh, since 96, we have uh, maybe uh, been involved in three, 400 business sales. Um, um, it, it's been uh, 
rewarding in a sense that um, uh, you, you, you meet so many different owners and, they're, uh, and you learn about their philosophies and how to run a business. Uh, it makes it very interesting. A lot of uh, hands-on personal uh, relationships that were developed. So I really enjoy that end of our business. And it's, it's nice to be able to help people with their exit strategies uh, for whatever reason that may be. Um, I think about 15 years ago, Jay, I, I think I'm right. Uh, Jay joined me and uh, we've been um, uh, a team ever since. Uh, so Jay, I'll let you take it from here. Yeah, I grew up in the Atlanta area where Preferred Business Brokers is based. And um, the first 20 years out of school, I worked uh, in the office furniture business. And about 15 years ago, an old college roommate of mine was working with Matt and convinced me to uh, come working uh, with them here at uh, Preferred Business Brokers. So I made the leap and haven't looked back. Um, I really enjoy what we do. We get to meet so many new people, so many different ways to run a business, and I've never been happier professionally. Well, that's great. So why don't we jump in, since you've had all these decades between the two of you uh, in working with entrepreneurs who are looking to step away from their business. Um, why don't we chat a little bit about some of those transactional stories? And Matt, why don't we start with you and maybe tell us a little bit about a transaction you've been involved in in the past that didn't go to plan or, or as well as the entrepreneur had hoped it would might work out for him. Do you have a transaction like that you can share with our audience? I, I do. I would say it has a little bit of a, of a different take than that, but, but um, it failed in the sense that the the owner could have done a lot better. So tell us a little bit about the type of business and a little bit about the background of the entrepreneur involved. Okay. So um, this gentleman came to us uh, a number of years ago to sell uh, his business or to actually uh, ask us if his business was saleable. Um, he had a, a, a beauty product business um, that really started as a, as a hobby for him and his wife. Uh, matter of fact, they, six years prior to meeting with us, uh, was selling uh, out of the trunk of his car, uh, kind of testing the market as a hobby. He was a, a full-time chemist uh, um, at that time and um, ended up selling $200,000 worth of product the first year. And um, um, thought, well, I might be on to something here. And the product came about because of his wife's uh, usage of the product and his his uh, other family members and his wife's friends. What type of product was it? Can you give us a brief description? Um, yeah, it was a beauty product. It was uh, uh, for for hair, uh, hair uh, extensions, um, uh, hair enhancement uh, beauty products. Um, and he he saw a, a real uh, market. Um, and of course, the market already existed, but he thought for some reason he could do it a little bit better. Um, he looked at the hair and he thought, well, I could add some natural enhancements to it and, and make it more desirable, perhaps uh, have the product last longer for the uh, customer. So he, he flew to um, China and India and talked to some manufacturers over there and started to import uh, hair. And 
Uh, I'm going to jump forward real quick. Um, and he built the business to $19 million in six years. Okay, so let's just time out here. Let's rewind that. So he went from a garage operation or really selling out of his trunk, as you said. And five, six years later, he has a $19 yeah. million dollar a year business. Needless to say, uh, uh, Jay and I perked up when we heard that. We, we wanted to know the story, as I'm sure you do as well. <laughs> I really do. That that that's a real scaled business very quickly. And generally scaled businesses going that quickly have their issues. And that's exactly right. So uh, this is an example of of where um in hindsight I'm sure the seller uh, would have liked to go back 6 years before meeting with us and paid more attention to his business. So I guess the, the takeaway from my little story here is uh, you know, sloppy management, sloppy accounting, not having the right people in place can cost you a lot of money when it comes to selling your business. So just out of curiosity, given that he's a chemist, probably not with a in-depth business background, give me an idea as he started to grow and scale, who did he hire initially? I mean, did he go out and hire really competent people to manage the business? Just give me a flavor of how quickly he was able to build his staff to handle that type of volume. Okay. Well, I would say probably too quickly with, without much thought. He hired family and friends who were not qualified, CFOs, CEOs, operations people, um, uh, marketing people, and so on. Um, uh, and, and with the volume picking up uh, as it did for him year after year, month after month, really, uh, he got so far into the weeds. If he needed more people, you know, who do you know? He was a, you know, a friend or uh, an employee would bring a friend in and never really had the competent team, competent team that he would need for business growing at, at this level. As a matter of fact, when we were able to look at his financials, uh, we saw really some eye popping um, expenses on there that just really did not make sense. Uh, just his shipping alone was was in the millions of dollars. Um, he was he was getting things overnighted versus in bulk. Um, labor costs seemed extremely high. Um, travel expense, sure, traveling overseas to meet with your manufacturers a couple of times a year is going to have some expense, but not the numbers that he was showing. Take travel for example. Why would that be so out of whack? Well, uh, you know, what would it? two, three trips cost a year to go visit your manufacturer. You know, you're there at a week at a time and you can figure out the plane cost, the uh, the room and board, uh, and, and then figure, okay, it's going to cost X amount of dollars. Uh, his travel expenses were 10, 15 times higher than that. And I, I don't know how personal I should get on this story, but it turns out that his uh, spouse was taking a lot of vacation time with a lot of family members and running up a pretty high bill. So as business brokers looking at that, you think, well, that, that would be an ad back. I'm sure the next owner would take that money and maybe spend it more frugally. So we, we saw that perhaps as an opportunity to, to enhance um, the seller discretionary earnings. Um, and then another number that stuck out kind of was charitable dona donations. And I'm not going to tell anybody you know, they, they shouldn't, you know, give to charity if that's what they want to do. But we're talking about $100,000 a month 
that was going to some local a local church. I'm sure that local minister was very happy, uh, but um, the business bottom line suffered. So we're looking at a business here that all of these expenses that you're talking about really are covered up by cash flow because when you have a business that's scaling that quickly, you generate a tremendous amount of cash flow and you have the ability to take money out of the bank almost at will when you're growing that fast because your cash flow is so strong. And I assume that's what was happening here. That, that's, ex that's exactly right. So money was flowing out uh, for... Um, all, all reasons outside of, of running the business. It, there was there were no efficiency, sloppy accounting. And when he, when he came to us and plopped that on our desk, he says, is my business worth anything? And then when we recasted the numbers and saw all the waste um, and addbacks that were um, easily provable and, and understandable uh, from a discerning eye, from a buyer looking at the business, we thought, yes, you have something here. So we calculated that this business, knowing $19 million, uh, was close to a 10% net margin. And when you say net margin, you really mean bottom line profitability. Correct. That, that's what I mean. And, and I'll take it a step further and say the seller's discretionary earnings, when we recasted, uh, was at least 10%, if not 12 or 13%. Uh, with uh, other addbacks, salary, and so on. So seller discretionary earnings are really the things that are added back that the seller is their personal salary and things of that nature. That, that, that's right. That's right. Um, uh, you have EBITDA and an owner's salary, and, and there's some question about the addback, the entire salary, you know, what, what's customary for a, a position depending on the type of business. Um um, any personal perks and benefits that might not pass on to the new owner, that the new, own, the new owner then has a discretion to spend that money uh, the way they wish. Um, but we felt that there would be available to a new owner close to one and a half to $2 million. So um, a typical multiple of that, you know, and, and it depends on a, a lot of different variables, industry, um, the size of the seller discretionary earnings, um, scalability, sustainability of the business, so macro and micro economic conditions, you know, all coming into play. Um, you know, this business probably was worth in a $6 million range. Um, but because of the sloppy accounting, it was a real challenge. And um, um, the fact that he spent so much more money on shipping, uh, that's the way he did it. Well, would the buyer then give him credit for that? And 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 if and most buyers did not want to give him credit for that. So did he have a lot of interest? I mean, you have all of the th issues that you're laying out here. Was there interest though? Was there serious buyers at the table? There was, and the reason for that, uh, the way we uh, presented the the company um, to the public and through the ads, uh, we encouraged them to to speak with us directly so we could give them the narrative um, uh, before we sent out the numbers. Because the numbers would be scary and it would raise so many questions and red flags. Well, the numbers, when you, you clarify here, when you say numbers would be scary for a buyer out there, you're talking a business doing $19 million in revenue, having little or no profitability. That's what you mean by scary. That's what I mean, losing money. Right, right. And we're, 
and why these expenses are um, so high and why there are certain expenses in the in the numbers. Well, it seems like at this level, when you're talking tens of millions of dollars in revenue, you attract the interest of private equity. I mean, that's certainly one of the types of the buyers that would come to the table or maybe some other, other industry player. You're exactly right. And, and that's who uh, we did attract uh, to this listing. So uh, they knew their margins, uh, those that were industry players. The private equity group saw the top line and really wanted to try to figure out uh, okay, why uh, there weren't um, typical margins on a business like this. And we did attract a lot of interest. And um, when we finally narrowed it down to the, uh, the buyers who were willing to take this on, um, it was kind of a little bit of a funny story. It's a private equity group. Uh, and one of the partner's wives was already in the same industry. So they had an idea of what this type of revenue really should generate uh, to the bottom line. And um, they moved rather quickly, uh, flew into town to meet with um, us and our seller. Uh, we put a deal together. And um, and I would say that the seller uh, was happy with what he got. Um, but if he paid attention to his numbers and his, uh, his team and had the right people in place during those six years, uh, there's no doubt in my mind we would attracted uh, offers three times that level. So I guess the big takeaway on this, Matt, is regardless of your revenue, you aren't really minding the store and doing the things that you should be doing, regardless of how much revenue and cash flow you're generating, you're not going to be able to maximize the value of your business. And it sounds just from a back of the napkin type of calculation here, you're talking he lost three or four million dollars of value that just could have been there, but wasn't there because of how he ran his operation by hiring family and friends and having his wife kind of using the business as an ATM. Uh, all of those things, while justifiable, don't engender a lot of confidence on the buyer side of the table that they're willing to discount all of those issues and to pay for what could potentially be there. Oh, no question. That's correct. And it, it lessens the seller position as a negotiator. They're, they're not dealing from a position of strength. So the other option would be for the seller to spend the next couple of years um, getting his books in order, straightening out the business, and then and then putting it on the market. Well, really, the other option, if I don't know what the actual motivation was to bring him to the table, but he could have spent a couple of years before he came to you getting those things in order and been able to maximize the value of his business. I mean, that was an option also, right? Oh, of course. And that's what we would prefer. Yes. You know, a business owner has to know that either one day they're going to close their business down, walk away, retire, or they're going to transition the business uh, to uh, maybe family members. And if that's not an option, then a nexus strategy would be to sell their business. And when you're running a business, I believe you need to keep that in mind every day that one day you are going to um, sell your business, say. Uh, there will be some sort of exit strategy. And this person did not keep that in mind at all. Yeah, well, 
Still a great story. From your trunk to $19 million is a great story regardless of how you tell it. It's just that the ability to maximize what he had created there was minimized. So I guess that's that's really the big takeaway here. So Jay, why don't you share a transaction with us from your portfolio of deals over the years that may be instructive to those listening in today? Okay. I was contacted by someone who wanted to buy a daycare. And I recently sold actually two daycares prior to this contact uh, and was referred by the last buyer um, to this buyer. And so I knocked on a few doors in the geography that she was looking for and uh, found a seller, uh, you know, a business owner who was willing to uh, to entertain the sale. Um, and this is a perfect example of what Matt just touched on with somebody not thinking about the future of his business um, he had owned the business for quite a while and, um, he ended up buying another business, completely different industry. Just out of curiosity in what industry? He, he bought several gyms, you know, workout facilities and, and was focused on that business, trying to make it grow and completely took his eye off the ball with the daycare business. Uh, he had, you know, a director in place managing the center for him, but, uh, you know, this was going on for uh, a couple of years and um, there was, you know, deferred maintenance and um, just, you know, management wasn't what it could have been had uh, a full time owner been paying attention. And and we see this all the time. Nobody runs the business for you typically as well as you would run it yourself. It's not their baby. It's yours. And, and so often the employees. Uh, you know, don't have the same care for the business that the owner would when the owner's an absentee owner. And so, um, you know, the guy told me he wanted a, a million dollars for the business. And I looked at his numbers and and it was tight, but it made, you know, it, could, it made sense financially. And so um, we started looking into it, put it under contract. Um, as uh, due diligence was going on, the buyer realized, uh, you know, she had had the building inspected and things like that. And she realized there was some deferred maintenance there. Um, and so she ended up negotiating down uh, the price to about $930,000, um, $930, which included the real estate. And, uh, and we were able to put a deal together. This new owner was not an absentee owner. So just out of curiosity, so we have this new owner that's taking a look at the business. She negotiates a fairly good deal. How much cash does she actually put down? Her total investment was only about $100,000. So she bought basically a million dollar business for about a hundred down and financed the rest. Exactly. Because it's so real estate intensive, um, uh, we were able to convince a bank that, you know, that was something that made sense. And, uh, and it, she actually borrowed probably another $45,000 on top of the purchase price uh, because she knew that deferred maintenance needed to be addressed. So she immediately pumped in, you know, forty-five dollars or $50,000 into the building uh, to bring a few areas up to speed. And then over the years that she owned it, she pumped in quite a bit more, but she never had to dip into her own personal savings for any of that. The business uh, supported it all. So just for clarification here, she put down 100000 or roughly $100,000, and it was a positive cash flow business on top of debt service, and she was able never to put any more of her own money to run the business as well as take a salary, and so she was there every day running the business and looking after 
uh, all the accounting and the parents and leasehold improvements and all of those things that she was really a hands-on owner is what you're telling me versus the other owner was pretty much hands-off. That's exactly right. The, the other owner, I think when he initially bought the business, he was hands-on, but he had, over years had become so distracted, he was completely hands-off. And the clientele, in most cases, didn't even know who he was. Where this new owner, she, you know, she was at the front door often when the kids were being dropped off or being picked up. So the, the parents knew her and liked her and they saw what she was doing with the facility. You know, she was putting money into it. And every time she uh, she made improvements, especially the visual, the visible ones for the for the clients, she would bump their rates up a little bit. Nothing dramatic, maybe five percent. Um, but the clientele saw that, hey, she just put in new floors throughout the whole center. Um, she, she's taken our, these little price increases and investing them. And um, over time, she uh, she completely filled the center up with students. She had a great reputation in the community um, and she became more and more profitable. So uh, her top line grew, her bottom line grew, the facilities were becoming more and more valuable because of what she was doing to them. I mean, over time, again, just taking profits and putting a new uh, roof on the building, putting new playground equipment in, new fence. Um, she invested all over the facility without pulling any personal money out of her account. And without borrowing it and all using cash flow. E exactly right. And paying down her initial uh, debt at the same time and paying herself a salary. So, um, so you know, being very involved, she was able to turn the business around from where it was when she purchased it. And after about seven years, she gave me a call back and she had already, when she bought the business, she had retired from another business. She came out of corporate America, which is typical of, of a lot of our buyers. They're displaced corporate um, people who are, uh, uh, just looking for their next challenge. And that's the way she was. And after about seven years, she actually had a grandchild in the school. Um, multiple of her grandkids came through it while she was there. So she loved that. Her youngest grandchild uh, was getting ready to age out of the center. So she figured that was a, a good time for her to sell the business. And so she asked us to come help her sell it. And looking at her books, um, we came up with a uh, an asking price of a million and a half dollars, um, which is obviously a, a 50 percent increase over what she paid for it. Well, the real magic here, I think, is uh, for those that are listening, if you run your business properly and you're generating cash flow, you really have a choice of what to do with that cash flow. You can invest it in the business or take it out of the business, pay some taxes on it and invest it someplace else. And what she did, she rolled it back into the business. And I'm just curious what you think she walked away from the closing table with on her original $100,000 investment. What do you think she walked away from the closing table with? Well, it was in the ballpark of a million dollars. She had um, a few hundred thousand in her operating account, which she took with her. It was an asset sale, which most of our transactions are. Um, and so she walked away with the cash in the business. Um, plus, she had paid down some of the original debt. Plus, we got a you know half a million dollar increase over what she paid for it. So she was in the ballpark of walking away with a million dollars after working in the business and paying herself a salary for all those years. 
Well, that's really the tale of two worlds. You have the absentee owner that probably didn't walk away from the table with a lot of money, and he probably didn't take a lot of money out of the business because he's paying a full-time manager. He's got debt that he's servicing and probably not all that profitable, and someone taking over identically the same business and a few years later generating a couple hundred thousand dollars a year to put it in her pocket and as well as walking away with a million dollars at the end of five, six, seven years. And so that's really the situation that most of the entrepreneurs out there, at at least at this level of business, that's really the ideal scenario. I mean, it's really the tale of two different philosophies or how you manage your business. I mean, I don't know how many people we've talked about here on the podcast or who are entrepreneurs that are serial entrepreneurs, they they get involved in more than one business. And it's really tough unless you've got a huge management infrastructure in place. It's really tough to keep your hand on the throttle on multiple businesses. And that sounds like that was a big fly in the ointment here with our first uh, entrepreneur that sold out of his daycare center here. I would agree completely. And it's interesting um, it doesn't even have to be a, a separate business that's distracting the owner. I've seen where owners just get complacent and they start, uh, you, you know, not not paying attention because they're uh, they're spending less and less time in the business. And often uh, we are the bearer of bad news when it comes to valuations, um, where the owner probably should have sold the business a few years earlier when they were really involved with it versus uh, waiting and becoming disinterested um, and then deciding to sell the business. Yeah. So I guess the real takeaway here is that you can buy and invest in the business and stay on top of it and time your exit accordingly before you get bored or involved in too many other things. And it's risk reward. You invest your time and efforts and build your infrastructure and keep an eye on the bottom line and you're going to be able to maximize the value of your business when it comes time to exit. And and it sounds like, as you said, timing of an exit can be as important as the amount of money you get out of an exit, especially if you aren't paying attention or get distracted in growing your business. Well, Matt, why don't we bounce back to you? Why don't we talk a little bit about maybe a transaction that worked out well for you? Okay. Marvin, this is a polar opposite of my first story. Uh, a, this company, um, a landscape installation company, commercial landscape company, uh, did business in multiple states. Uh, the owner um, grew up in the industry. So when you say grew up in the industry, give me a little flavor for who he was, how early he got involved in the business. Did he start working for somebody else? Did he start his own business right out of school, come out of corporate America? What, what was the story? Not in his case, right, right out of school, uh, 20 years old, pushing a lawnmower, working for another landscaper. Um, and then uh, over, I guess, a 40, 45-year career in the industry, had uh, multiple experiences, as you can imagine, uh, built a few smaller companies and was able to sell them over the years. And then uh, finally, in, I guess, about 20 years ago, established this particular company. I knew that he wanted to be in installation, knew that he wanted to be in commercial installation, uh, knew that uh, within commercial, wanted to be in a certain niche uh, to do larger projects. So in the landscaping business, just for some context here, I mean, you, you really have situations where you do residential or commercial and your income can come from maintenance on a weekly maintenance of landscaping properties or just new construction or building. And it sounds like he had settled in on the installation side 
and specifically in commercial. And it sounds like he even went deeper than that on a specific vertical within the commercial industry. Is that how I'm interpreting what you're saying? That's exactly right. Um, most of the inquiries we get on on uh, landscape are for maintenance companies, um, and they're looking for that cash flow, it's steady uh, versus installation, which might have higher profit margins, uh, but maybe there's a little bit more risk involved. Uh, but in this particular case, uh, he knew what he wanted, and and that's exactly what he did. He established a company in 2002 or three, so almost 20 years ago. And unlike the first example, hired the right people from the get-go. He had industry connections uh, from um, uh, from foremen uh, to uh, uh, project managers uh, to um, financial people, uh, salespeople. So he put together a top-notch team and his business grew steadily over the years. Of course, you know, the, the Great Recession slowed it down a little bit, but was able to survive and, and keep its employees intact and then uh, continue to grow uh, when the economy started to bounce back and really never looked back since. So I'm just curious, when you're talking about installations, are you talking like installations on an apartment building or an office complex or things like that, that ran $50,000, $100,000 for installation? Give me a context for kind of the scale or the scope of his projects. Okay. In, in his case, uh, larger projects, uh, multifamily, uh, um, uh, office complexes, things like that, uh, where the project could be $400,000 on the low end, a uh, million dollars on, on the high end. And you're talking about uh, softscape as well as hardscape. Um, and that certainly can add up on, on bigger projects. And that was his uh, goal. Um, that was his, uh, his model uh, to go after the larger projects. Well, it sounds like in our first example, you were talking about a $19 million business in Tyler Diffin industry, certainly. But... Is that kind of the range we're talking about here, too? That's correct. We are uh, 15 million uh, to 20 million in, in revenue. That, that, that's correct. With a solid um, a 10% net margin, uh, as well as some other addbacks to come up a little bit higher, seller discretionary earnings, but um, solid. Books and records clean from the get go, um, management in place. Uh, he could. The owner could walk away from the business and the business not miss a beat. He, he, here's an example where um, every day he thought about the day that he was going to sell his business. Uh, he made sure that his employees were happy and well taken care of. He made sure that his customers knew that the company was very dependable. Uh, he made sure that, the, um, that when he bought the product, he bought it in, in the most efficient manner so that he could give his clients the best prices and still make his margins, um, paid attention every day so that when the time came, he wasn't just looking for the highest bidder when he came to us to sell his business. So I want to back up and just have you elaborate a little bit on he didn't take the highest bid. It sounds like there were probably a number of people, especially again, when we're talking about $10, $20 million in revenue, you attract the attention of a certain type of buyer uh, that wants to be able to step in and take it to the next level. And so it sounds like he had a number of people, but he didn't take the highest offer on the table. And I'd like to know a little bit more about what his thinking was. Okay, so this goes back to his business being prepared and putting him in a position 
to negotiate, unlike the uh, first individual. Um, we, we did get multiple, we did have multiple interests. A lot of the interest came from uh, the private equity sector or investment groups. Uh, and it was very important to this seller when he came to me with us that um, we found a hands-on operator, much like himself, who would um, take the crew out to lunch, who would spend time with the crew and their families, have them over for a barbecue. And he wasn't kidding. He was, he really wanted us to find uh, that perfect buyer. And we accepted that challenge because we felt that he prepared his business uh, to give us a better chance to find that perfect buyer. And lo and behold, uh, we were able to do that. And uh, this, I count this as a success story um, because everybody walked away happy, the buyer, the seller, the brokers, you know, everybody involved in the transaction. So when you say perfect buyer for him, given that he's kind of in the driver's seat, he's not in any big hurry. The business has got a management infrastructure in place. His employees are happy. It sounds like he's growing the business. He could take his time. He was getting ready to step away from his business, but he wanted to find a specific type of buyer. What was the motivation behind that perfect buyer? What was he really looking for? The motivation wasn't just financial. Equal, an equal part to that was taking care of his crew, uh, the 40, 45 employees that he had. They were with him, most of them for the, since the inception of the business, and, and quite a few of them from previous businesses. Um, this gentleman is in his mid-60s, and some of the crew members, uh, 40-ish in that age group, he really talked to us about them being his, like his sons. So, uh, sometimes a seller will come to you and they, they want their employees to be taken care of. And of course, that's, it's, it's important, but eh, sometimes the, the higher offer wins out. In this case, we, we knew that he was not bluffing, that he, that that was an important, um, um, it was important to him that the buyer uh, have the same um, mindset that he had and this buyer coming in certainly didn't have the relationship, the buyer that ended up buying the business, have the same relationship because he's new to the business. But he he, uh, he wanted this buyer to create, to have that same culture in the business, uh, to have that same uh, caring attitude. And in doing so, he, he then tied it to the profitability. And he believed that that's the reason why his company uh, was so profitable. The customers could depend on him because they could depend on the crew, the consistency, because he wasn't, he didn't have a revolving door of employees every year. They stayed and they stayed for the right reasons. So that in turn, certainly I believe added to his bottom line. Well, it sounds like some of the buyers at the table were private equity. Is that right? Okay. Well, yeah, yes. <laughs> so traditionally that wouldn't be his ideal buyer. They may make the better offer because they're looking for return on their investment and a business that can operate without the owner being there and all the things that you've kind of outlined here. He's ready. He's got his books in order. He's got management team. He's got happy customers. He's growing all those things is, you know, right in the sweet spot for private equity. And they were at the table as well as a buyer that wasn't private equity, but bought more into the hands-on operation, being involved in the business and taking care of his employees. He actually got a higher offer, a higher cash offer, but he walked away from that and took a lower offer because of the fit. Well, um, 
in, in this case, he had we had multiple other interests and other offers. I wouldn't say they were actually higher. Uh, um, the, some of the groups, uh, and a lot of the groups, and we've experienced this, and there's nothing wrong with that. Every every individual deal is different, um, but this really is a sweet spot for private equity, uh, having a team in place. And but they wanted most of the private equity groups get him to stay on and and to uh, get paid out um, with future earnings, basically with his own money. Um, so that was not appealing to him. And and again, most of the other most of the other interests, uh, they were going to manage from afar. Um, and that really turned this particular seller off. Um, so uh, the, the buyer that, that did come come in and end up buying it uh, was local, uh, was ready to be hands-on. I mean, he came from corporate America, uh, was a consultant, was doing very well, but was bored. He wanted, he was a, ready for the next challenge. And, and, and um, he actually came from uh, another business that we had listed, he had an interest in that, but uh, but was just a, a day late. Uh, somebody else beat him to the punch and bought that business. So we thought this would be a perfect match. Uh, but of course, uh, to to expose our seller to multiple offers and multiple um, opportunities, uh, we brought in um, other. other Groups and 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 they flew down to to our uh, to Atlanta to meet with them, and um, uh, so he could really make sure that um, what he wanted uh, was indeed um, what he was going to get. And and some of these other offers certainly could have turned out to be a lot more money in the long run, uh, but they also carried a certain amount of risk. Uh, but he was happy to uh, get his asking price with the right buyer. And, and not have to look over his shoulder uh, worrying whether or not the employers are going to be taken care of. So I think the takeaway from this, if I may, would be that if, um, if you have certain criteria that you really want as a seller, then make sure you're preparing your business to meet that criteria. Um, and this, this particular seller uh, was true uh, to his exit strategy really on a daily basis. Well, I like that a lot. You're summing up your whole discussion here about the takeaway is really if you have a specific objective when you sell financial and other things, and in this case, taking care of his employees, you really increase the odds of being able to achieve what your objectives are if you have positioned your business for meeting those objectives and have all the check boxes ticked off on how you're going to be able to sell the business and taking care of the things like management infrastructure and those type of things, you increase the probability of being able to find the right buyer to meet your terms. And that's really what this story sort of outlines, in, in my view anyway. Is that a fair statement? Uh, very fair. Yes, I agree. All right. All right. Let's, Jay, we'll go back to you and kind of wrap up here today. Why don't you talk a little bit about a transaction that was kind of a, a double, triple, or maybe even a home run for the seller? Um, okay. Well, a few years ago, we worked with a seller um, who was a fairly young guy. Um, he started as an entrepreneur very young in life. He he uh, graduated from college, and uh, he was shortlisted for medical school. And while he was waiting to hear on medical school, he went to work uh, in the medical industry. He went to work for a a uh, 
medical technical company that would go into uh, the operating room and help doctors with surgeries. So just to back up here, if we get a context here. So he went to work kind of as a field technician or, or specialist that worked with surgeons to help them implant or install the technology or the products right in the operating room. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah, it, it was a, it's a technology that helps keep the uh, surgeons out of trouble while they're operating on patients. Okay, cool. And so um, after about a year of doing that for someone else, he broke off on his own. And really, he started working with one doctor. And, um, and that doctor referred him to another doctor who referred him to another doctor. And before he knew it, he had more business than he could handle on his own. So he hired another technician to come in there and work with him. And it kept growing and he hired another technician. And when he contacted us, which was about six or seven years into ownership, um, he had about seven technicians working for him and was doing, I, I think, around five million dollars in gross and was netting about a million dollars, uh, you know, going into his pocket. And, uh, you know, for a fairly young guy, that's that's a lot of money. Well, and this comes without having to go to medical school, too. Exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> um and so he, he approached us and he felt like he had taken the business about to where he could take it on, a, you know, on his own and, and ask us to sell it for him. So um, we decided, you know, together that um, a price of about four million dollars made sense. And and we were able to um, attract a fair amount of attention with buyers and um, got multiple offers around the same time, which is a great position for a seller to be in um, to have to. It can be a tough de decision. Uh, to decide on who to sell it to, um, one or two of the guys wanted to uh, wanted him to stay on and help manage the business, and another one or two of the guys wanted to just buy it outright. And um, and he chose to go with um, with a, a guy who wanted to own a portion of it and get him to stay on uh, with a payout over time potentially to be much greater. So together, the plan was together, they would grow the business. Okay, so let's unpack your comment there. So he had the option, he had people at the table that were willing to pay the $4 million. That was the listing price, right? Actually, it turned into even more than $4 million because when the guy found out he was the odd man out, he came back to us and, and threw a higher figure at us, um, try, trying to get back in. And, uh, and the seller decided that just wasn't the right uh, person for him to sell to. So we have a buyer that's had cash offer. He came back with even a higher cash offer when he found out he may not get the business, but the seller was really sort of interested in this other company. Tell me a little bit more, if you can, about what the motivation, why was there that interest there that allured him not to take the cash and kind of move on? Well, this particular buyer had experience in the medical industry. He was on the board of directors for uh, a few hospitals, uh, which potentially could open up new doors for him in different markets. And because, because he was really, you know, in this market in, in the Atlanta, in the Georgia area. Um, and so uh, this potential buyer uh, brought with him some opportunities in other markets and was really willing to get into it, into the management of the business with him side by side. And together, they were going to grow the business into something bigger and find a new buyer at some point down the road. Okay, so we have the scenario that's unfolding here of now he's going to sell a portion of his business. Was this 50% or 20%? What percentage, I guess? It was 50%. 
which is unusual in, in those types of deals. Uh, usually they say 51%, 49 or something, but, uh, but they agreed to 50-50. And so he bought 50% uh, for $2 million. And then together they were going to grow the business, which they did. So I'm curious, how long were they in business together and what did they sell it for? They were in business together for approximately five years and sold it for $27 million. Okay, so let's do the math. So he got $2 million off of the table, selling 50% of his business. He left 50% in. They sold it for $27 million, so 50% of that went to him. So that's like $13.5 million plus $2 million is $16.5 million versus a little over $4 million offer five years earlier. That's a pretty good return on time and equity. Oh, and if you think of how young the guy is, I mean, um, I saw him not too long ago and he's talking about his next venture. He's not anywhere close to retiring. Um, he, he's driven. Well, I mean, from what you're telling me here, this is like 10 years. He's probably in his early 30s, actually. That's right. Middle middle 30s. Yeah. yeah. And so he's got more than a few bucks in the bank uh, to go off and do something else that catches his interest. Well, that and it's probably a little bit better than he would have done as a doctor, at least at 35 years old anyway. I'd say so. He would just be getting out of medical school with a big debt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, well, that's a great story. So I guess the real takeaway on something like this, sometimes just selling your business is not the best option and maybe finding a partner or a joint venture type of arrangement. Sounds like the other buyer in this situation brought a lot of management expertise, a lot of contacts in the industry using the technology that he had developed. And this is a situation where it sounds like one plus one equaled three. Or four or five, well, at least equal 27 million. So a good outcome for both of them, I think. One person invested $2 million and got back 13.5 million. One person took $2 million and got back another $13.5 million. That's what I would consider a home run for everyone involved. Yeah, that's a great story. Jay, well, I appreciate you sharing that with us. Well, this rolling up here to wrap up our discussion here with Matt and Jay. Jay, why don't you talk a little bit about how if someone wanted to get a hold of you, your preferred brokers here in the Atlanta area, how they would reach out and do that to you. Our website is preferredbrokers.com. My phone number is 404-966-5989. Matt, you want to give your phone number? Certainly. Uh, 404-863-863. 2200. And you could email us at company at preferredbrokers.com. All right. Well, this has been a great discussion, a lot of interesting stories and some takeaways that I think will resonate with a lot of the people that listening to the podcast for those tips and hints and advisors to help them begin to think about positioning their businesses for exit here. So this is Marvin L. Storm with Business Exit Stories, and we'll see you on our next episode. Thanks, Marvin. Thanks for listening to the Business Exit Stories podcast. For more information or to reach out to today's guest, visit www.businessexitstories.com for more details. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast from your favorite podcasting platforms. And remember, maximizing business value at the time of exit doesn't happen magically. It takes planning.